This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody, it's Lon Sybin, and it's time once again for your weekly wrap-up, and we're going to be looking at a bunch of topics today, including some discussion on the Facebook access token breach that you might have heard about. Intel CPUs are in demand because PC sales are up for the first time in many years. There's a new Chromecast that apparently Best Buy has been selling by accident. We'll look very briefly at that. MS-DOS has gone open source. Feature removals from software. What happens when your favorite piece of software takes away the feature you like and why do they do that? We'll explore that a little bit as well. Apple and the FDA and how they got their ECG feature Uh, approved or at least cleared by the Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S. And we'll talk about backlights on home theater keyboards and why some people want them and some people don't need them. Let's get going. And before we get going here on the channel, I want to thank our newest members here on the channel, including Bill Reiner and A. Pleb. I want to thank everyone who's been contributing to the channel on an ongoing basis and everyone who watches on an ongoing basis, too, because all of those things equal channel growth. And this week, we have an advertiser. Plex is once again supporting the weekly wrap-up for the beginning of the month. And if you are not familiar with Plex, it's something we cover quite a bit here on the channel because they do a sponsored video here as well. And this is a media serving application that you can install on your network-attached storage devices or on a PC And you can take all the media that you have in your house, whether it's movies and music and other things that you have the physical files for, and share them with all of your devices, including things that you plug into televisions, but also mobile devices like uh, tablets and phones. It supports Android, Amazon, Fire OS, along with iOS and many other platforms too, including smart televisions. And the really cool thing is that if you're away from home, Plex will make the video smaller on the fly and transmit it to you over the internet so you can not miss a thing if you have something recorded at home. And Plex has really been moving in the direction of cord cutting, and they have something called the Plex Pass, which unlocks more features. And one of the biggest premium features of Plex Pass is, of course, the DVR that we've covered in prior episodes here on the channel. They now have a grid-based channel guide, too, on that DVR. Uh, the mobile syncing for offline viewing is another great Plex Pass feature, so you can actually download your media onto your phone before you leave and have it available to you in a familiar interface. Every place that you uh, watched or stopped will be synced back to the main server, so you can pick up right where you left off with some bookmarking. You get free Plex apps across every platform. Without the Plex Pass, you do have to pay for those apps. You can do things like parental restrictions, which we've explored in prior editions. The subtitle searching, which is a brand new feature, is now in Plex with a Plex Pass subscription. And you'll get access to many other features, too, as they come online. You can get more information on Plex Pass or gift it to somebody else at the links you see down below. So let's take a look now at the Week in Review. On the Extras channel, we unboxed a new portable touch monitor that I will be reviewing hopefully later this week. We also unboxed the HP Tango X, which is HP's new IoT printer, and we reviewed that this week on the main channel, as you can see at the top of the list right there. 
And what's funny about printer reviews is that everyone's got a different opinion, primarily because I think there are so many different types of printers. There's something for everybody. So some people really liked the look and the compact size of it. Others felt it was overpriced given that it's the same mechanism inside as other printers have inside of them. So it's one of those things where either it works for you or it doesn't. And the good thing for us consumers is that we have a lot of choice. I thought it was kind of a cool thing. I don't think I would use a lot of the IoT features that they have available, but the, uh, the gist of what they're trying to accomplish here is something that uh, if you are an occasional printer, this is maybe a device that doesn't look so ugly sitting in your room when it's not in use. Uh, so that might be one use case there. And some folks also talked about the fact that they're allowing you to print photos for free, essentially, if you have a instant ink subscription was something they felt might be uh, a good value. Uh, Plex, we did a little uh, sponsored video for on their new subtitle search and integration feature. I know a lot of people are into subtitles, so you can check that out. I also got some ideas to do a follow-up video for manually adding subtitles to Plex because there are some uh, plugins that are going away, and we will cover some other ways to add subtitles to the mix when those uh, plugin features are removed. Uh, a lot of people were asking about that, so we'll probably cover that later this month. And we also reviewed the Razer Huntsman Elite. This didn't get a lot of views, unfortunately, but it's kind of a cool gaming keyboard. Very expensive at around 200 bucks. It's a mechanical keyboard. It feels a lot like the cherry blue uh, keys feel, but it's got these opto mechanical switches on there. So there's actually a light sensor in every key that determines when the key should be actuated. Uh, so I, I guess if you're able to tell the difference in milliseconds between a traditional mechanical keyboard and this one, you might see a faster response time. But nonetheless, in our testing, it was actually a pretty decent keyboard, and it was a, a fun little review to do. Uh, one of the things that I was doing in that review was providing some close-up views in real time of the keys as I pushed them. And I was able to do that with NDI, which we talked about in a video a few weeks ago. So I could take this live video from my phone on my desk here and integrate it right into the rest of my workflow, and that was pretty fun. I'll put a link to the NDI video in the master playlist so you can see more about how I'm using some new technologies here on the channel to make my workflow a lot more efficient. And now it's time for a couple of things that are on my mind, and this is week 84 of me doing this as a full-time occupation. And I mentioned last week that I was going to TechMunch in New York City to talk about video creation and how it's been working for me as a profession. And this was a fun panel because this was not a tech conference. This was a conference of people that do a lot of food content creation, both video and blogging. And a lot of folks there were interested in getting into video. And it's amazing just in talking to some of my fellow panelists and some other people I met at the show, uh, how relevant one vertical's experiences are to another. So a lot of the things that I'm learning doing this are actually applicable in the food space. And we had a great discussion. Unfortunately, they didn't record it, I don't think. So I don't think there's a, uh, a stream that I can send you to for this. But if there is one, I will find it and uh, let you know in a future upcoming episode and also add it into my podcast feed too. But it was really uh, just a good time to uh, meet some other folks and get out of the house for a little bit. So it was always fun to shoot out to New York City, even if it's for a brief trip. And now it's time for some things in the news that caught my eye. And of course, the big story this week was about Facebook and their security breach that exposed the accounts, potentially, of 50 million users. And as a precaution, they logged out 90 million users. And as many as that sounds, it's actually a small percentage of the overall Facebook user base. I think it was about 2% or so of the 2 billion plus that are currently registered with Facebook accounts on their system worldwide. But this breach was pretty serious because if somebody wanted to target you and get into your account, 
uh, there was a way that they could do it without even having to trick you into entering in your password. This would circumvent uh, username and password entry. It would also circumvent two-factor authentication because hackers are actually able here to acquire the login token that Facebook uses so that you don't have to type in that password every time you do something on their platform or connect up another service to your Facebook account. You can see how wide-reaching a breach like this can be. And the result of how this all happened was some complexity within Facebook systems and how different things inside of their platform interacted in a bad way in this case to make this, uh, this breach occur. And it was kind of crazy how it all came together. So here's what happened as far as I can understand it. Uh, Facebook has a view as feature on your profile. Right now that feature is disabled because of this security issue, but basically what it lets you do is see what other people see when they look at your profile. Uh, so if you wanna be careful about what your mom sees on your Facebook profile, uh, you could of course hide posts from your mom, hope you don't do that, uh, or you could put your mom in a list of, of people that don't get all the posts that you put up. There's a lot of uh, granularity you can apply to Facebook posts to figure out who can see them versus who can't, and this view as uh, feature allowed you to see what other people could see based on where you put them on your Facebook list bucket thing there. And not a lot of people use this feature, but it's there. Now what happened is, is that when you were viewing this as your mom to see what she might see on your profile, sometimes when you clicked on that view as feature as your mom, uh, you would see a video uploader pop up instead of your profile and how it might appear to that other user. This bug apparently was going on for at least a year. So this has been a long-standing issue that nobody knew was there. And after that thing popped up and you were viewing as somebody else, you could actually take over their access token and that would allow you to log in as the person you were viewing as if you appropriately uh, attached that token to whatever you were doing inside your web browser or app. Probably not so easy for a regular user to do, but people that are very experienced in uh, doing this kind of hacking online could easily make that attachment. And what also appeared to occur is that they were able to begin uh, going down the social graph. So if I was able to get, for example, the user access token from my mom's account, I could then start automating this process and get more user tokens from other users. And apparently uh, somebody went in and really tried to exploit this feature and there was a lot of unusual activity which prompted Facebook to figure out exactly what happened here. Uh, but it's totally conceivable that people were using and exploiting this feature for a long period of time before Facebook even knew about it. So I've seen a lot of my friends get their Facebook accounts hacked and taken over and I often assume that maybe they just typed in uh, the password on something incorrectly or approved some service to use their account that they uh, were not paying attention to, but it's very likely that people just had this happening to them over a long period of time. Now, what do you risk losing here? It really depends on what you are doing on the platform. If you're just using Facebook to upload photos and uh, communicate with friends every once in a while, probably not a huge deal in privacy issues here, especially if most of what you do is public or mostly public, but it is a bigger deal if you are using your Facebook account to log into other services. And there are a ton of websites and apps that allow you to just log in with your Facebook account as opposed to having to create a separate account for all of them. I like that convenience. I know a lot of you probably like that convenience too. And all of those apps might be vulnerable if you were somebody targeted by this particular vulnerability. Now I say targeted because really for you to become a victim of this, somebody would actually have to want to 
log into your account, for example, you could be picked up at random and uh, just somebody might just stumble across your user access code and get in that way. But generally, I think uh, the most malicious intent here would be targeting users directly, uh, either as a means of extracting personal information from them or perhaps targeting other people that they know who might be prominent. Uh, and this is all this kinds of stuff that uh, really gets me a little nervous here, especially when all the things that you might do right to protect your account, like a good password and two-factor authentication, are rendered completely useless when uh, an exploit like this comes about. And hopefully every other uh, authentication provider out there, like Google, uh, is paying very close attention to seeing what happened here. And it really speaks to also just how complex our systems are these days, because uh, this was an example of probably three different departments in Facebook working on three different things, and a bug in each interacted with each other in a way that they missed it, as this huge company that takes security hopefully very seriously was just completely missed because their system has grown so complex. We see this with Windows all the time. It's such a complex operating system that there are always vulnerabilities being discovered just based on the complexity of how these systems work. And I think this is definitely not going away. Unfortunately, the only advice I can give if you're really concerned about this kind of stuff is uh, to just not put things on the internet that you're not comfortable people finding. And that's unfortunately uh, the only way to really avoid this altogether because every single good security practice was rendered useless by this particular vulnerability. Now, should you be worried? I think maybe if you were one of the accounts that was logged out by Facebook, it might not be a bad idea to go through all of your Facebook connected apps and change their passwords just to be safe. Uh, but generally, once you're logged out, that user access code goes away and gets regenerated. So I think for the most part, the uh, damage is going to be minimal from here on out. But in many cases, the damage might be done. I'd love, though, to hear from you this week in our Q&A for You segment as to whether or not you were logged out by Facebook and if you noticed any unusual activity on your account. I was logged out of Facebook about two weeks ago. I don't know if it was related to this or not. And they also made me change my password because they noticed some unusual activity on my account. So that made me very nervous. Nothing was posted, but I wonder if maybe I was caught up in this in some way when they were first figuring out what was going on. So I uh, did go through and change passwords and double check everything that I've connected Facebook to, but who knows what else might be out there that might be vulnerable. So. Hopefully this won't be a problem for me and I'd love to hear what happened to you. And in many ways, this kind of reminds me of what happened with Yahoo Mail a number of years ago. I noticed that a lot of my friends had their accounts compromised and taken over and it felt like it was just happening to too many people for it to be something where everybody I knew uh, was typing in their passwords to some fake login page somewhere. I felt like something else was going on. And sure enough, a couple of years later, Yahoo announced that most of the accounts on their platform had been compromised for a long period of time. And I think this might be the tip of the iceberg on this particular Facebook bug. Hopefully they're working very hard right now to lock down what other, other issues might be there. But to be honest with you, again, I'm not sure how they can even find all of these things. So uh, just be careful out there. It's a crazy, scary world. And in other news, Intel has announced that their supplies for PC chips are very, very tight. Uh, they're going to be focusing more on high-end processors for the time being because there's more money in that, of course. They're putting about a billion dollars into ramping up production. It looks like they were kind of caught off guard by the PC industry's uptick in sales over the last couple of years. And perhaps there's just a lot of people ready to upgrade now as the economy is improving. However, they have a lot of demand on the low end, according to this article, and it doesn't appear as though Intel is necessarily focusing their efforts on that. Uh, so this might impact what we see for new lower cost PCs 
and it might actually drive some of these lower cost PC prices higher. Uh, so we'll have to keep an eye on what's going on with Intel. This might be a very good opportunity for AMD who might be able to fill in that void at the low end of the market and perhaps capture more market share. I'm really eager to find some inexpensive Ryzen powered laptops. I've got one from Huawei that I'm going to track down and hopefully there are some other ones out there too. Let me know if you know of any down in the comments below. And 9to5Google Google reports that a customer was able to walk into Best Buy and buy a new Google Chromecast before they were even announced. Uh, you can see what the photos look like at the link you see on screen there. It looks pretty much the same. They just put a matte finish on the device. Maybe they made some Wi-Fi improvements, but from the box they posted, uh, this looks to be just a 1080p device for the same price point as the current Chromecast. So this might just be a kind of an incremental upgrade versus uh, something more significant. Uh, there will be a Google announcement, I believe, next week. And I'm sure this will be announced there, uh, along with maybe some other stuff too. So we'll be keeping an eye on all the new Google hardware being announced. And I'm sure I will be generating a shopping list of things to get for review here on the channel. So stay tuned for that. Now, if you want to know how Bill Gates built his empire, you can now get a hold of the source code for MS-DOS, which has been released into open source on GitHub, which, by the way, is owned by Microsoft now, I believe. And they have version 1.25 and version 2.0 of MS-DOS available now. You can get in and look at exactly how they crafted that operating system, which really built that company into what we know it as today. And it might be a fun thing if you are interested in operating systems to grab a copy and check out how they made it all work. Uh, this is back from the 80s, so you're not going to get a hold of DOS 6 or anything more recent, but again, something interesting if you are uh, eager to learn how Microsoft built their empire through code. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers, and I wanted to talk about two things related to the Plex video that I uploaded recently. Uh, the first one came from John, who was concerned that plugins are going to be potentially going away completely from the Plex platform. It looks like they're going to allow manual plugin installation for the time being, but over time they might remove it altogether. And John says if those plugins go away, he is done with Plex. Uh, Victor here was curious about Plex Cloud, which is a more recent feature that Plex recently announced they were getting rid of. Uh, Plex Cloud allowed you to uh, have a Plex server running in their cloud, and you could connect up your Dropbox or Google Drive where you have media stored and serve through that. So even if your uh, home server was not working, you could do it through the cloud. They got rid of that as well. Now, if you're curious as to why they're making all of these changes, they do have a new blog post up on their website where they detail uh, the features they are thinking of getting rid of or will be getting rid of and their reasoning behind it. And I'm going to speak to you just as a YouTube creator and some of my own experiences having to decide what's the best for my business growth versus what people want to see. Uh, as well as some experiences I've had as a user of software where features have been removed or deprecated. And I certainly understand where people are coming from on this. I'm not going to be speaking as an official Plex spokesperson here. I haven't talked to them about this, but it's very clear as to why they're making these decisions based on this blog post. So all of the features that they're getting rid of this month are going away because there are not many people using them. Now, I know the plugin community is probably some of the uh, most long-standing Plex users who are very devoted to the platform. So even though it's 2%, it's going to feel like a lot more, especially for people who are really depending on these plugins. The good news for them, at least at the moment, is that they're not going away completely. They're going to be uh, manually installable for the foreseeable future. But it looks like from Plex's perspective, 
uh, as their platform grows and matures, uh, there are things that they need to change to make things work better. Uh, one thing they suggested in the blog post is that there are third-party applications that link up with Plex, and they see that perhaps as the way to move forward for uh, maybe augmenting some features that might be lacking on the main Plex architecture. And they gave an example of one application, and I can think of their uh, little audio player that we looked at a few weeks ago that also uh, connects with Plex externally, uh, not through a plug-in mechanism. So that's probably where they want to go. It's probably difficult for them, as they mentioned here in the blog post, to connect some of the protocols they're using for these plugins with all the new features they keep adding. And I would bet uh, they're seeing growth in areas that uh, aren't so compatible with plugins, for example. And that's probably why they want to focus on the growth areas and focus their team on new features and fixing bugs for things that people do use as opposing as opposed to spending a lot of time trying to fix things and make them work with features that are not heavily used by a large number of users. And in my own experience here as a YouTube creator, I have made similar decisions. The best example is my didn't make the cut videos where I would look at three products and tell you why they weren't so great. I do want to do those again, but what I found was that I had to spend a lot of time on those videos and I wasn't getting a lot of viewership of those. Uh, there was a small subset of subscribers that loved them. I know who you all are and I, I'm committed to trying to get it back again at some point, but it wasn't generating the type of watch time and uh, engagement that some of my other videos do. And in looking at how those did versus the others, I really need to focus my time on things that drive growth right now. And that's why we haven't done one of those in a while. Uh, there might be a week where I've got some time and I'll you know, push one of those out, but it's not a priority now based on what I see as growth areas of the channel. And conversely, uh, the weekly wrap-up has gotten longer because we're actually seeing more watch time the longer it gets, which uh, is great, which means people are interested in this show. And I've been spending more time on this as a result of uh, some of the data I got back. So no doubt they have gone through uh, similar uh, analyses on their end to figure out what's best for users and growth moving forward. And I am using Plex differently now than I did when I first got into it. And I think that's probably the case for a lot, but not all users. And that's always the balance that you have to strike there. Now, as a user of some other things, I've experienced some issues lately. Uh, just about a week or two ago, we were talking about two applications that I depend on quite heavily for my uh, personal organization, uh, OmniFocus and Inbox by Gmail. And in the last two weeks, two things have happened to these two applications. Uh, Inbox has been announced to be on the chopping block completely, so it's going to disappear uh, very shortly. Uh, OmniFocus pushed out a great new update, except the way that I look at OmniFocus has changed significantly in this update in that I can't sort my tasks out the way I used to on the prior version of OmniFocus. And I had to fill in a, a feature request to them to bring back some basic due date sorting uh, when you look at a particular uh, view of your uh, upcoming tasks. And it, to me, it's a very simple thing. I've been using their application this way for uh, close to 10 years, but apparently I wasn't one of the, the majority of users that was doing that. And as a result, when this new version came out, I spent at least an hour trying to find how to sort my tasks out only to learn that that's not how it works anymore. And I was really quite upset about that. And this is something that happens to all of us, unfortunately, when we do something in a way that's different than the rest of the world. And I think applications like these that are very feature rich are the ones that are probably at 
the greatest risk for these things happening. You adopt a workflow and then that workflow tends not to be what the rest of the world is doing and suddenly your workflow has to get reworked. And uh, that was what I experienced this week. I'm hoping they can add mine back in because it's a very simple thing to add, I would imagine. But uh, for the meantime, I had to develop some workarounds which are working, but not perfectly just yet. Uh, and this is unfortunately life in the 21st century with these applications that are constantly in development. Now, about two weeks ago, I was talking about the new Apple Watch feature that is going to add an ECG to that product so that you can get notified if you're having uh, AFib or other types of arrhythmias. And uh, Joanne here wrote in to say that this is going to be a US-only feature initially. Uh, it looks like Joanne is from Australia, and it doesn't look like Australia's regulators have approved this feature yet. And this is going to be the one thing that will certainly slow down uh, the rollout of this feature over time because they have to, first of all, appease U.S. regulators before they release the software. In fact, the watch launched without that feature enabled. Uh, but they also have to do the same thing in every single country they want to offer this feature in. And that's going to require uh, dealing with medical regulators in each of those places because this is a device giving some kind of medical advice and regulators will want to make sure that it's not putting your health at risk uh, in the process of doing that. So there's certainly going to be, I think, a lot of time here before every country gets this feature. But it looks like to some degree the FDA uh, kind of fast-tracked this. In fact, there was some discussion about the fact that uh, Apple announced this feature and the FDA clearance of it happened within the same day or two, and there was some discussion about that. Uh, the FDA released a pretty lengthy statement uh, the same day this erupted to try to uh, give people more information as to what went on behind that. And they have a, a new process that they've developed inside the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for clearing these kinds of devices. They can't go out and say that this is an FDA-approved device for this, but they can say that the FDA cleared it. They looked at it. They made sure that it wasn't posing any real risks and provides a greater benefit than those risks. And given what they saw here, apparently they are okay with that. And this is their statement about this new procedure. They believe that regulating novel, swiftly evolving products must foster and not inhibit innovation. And so they're working to uh, come up with flexible and risk-based approaches to regulation, uh, which they hope will reduce the time and cost of market entry. And there's some other information that you can see uh, on the actual clearance letter that they sent to Apple here, which you can find at the link on screen. And in that, they looked at what are the risks to health here with this device. One big one would be a poor quality ECG signal. Uh, so what the mitigation for that is from the regulatory standpoint is they want some additional clinical performance testing and some human factors testing and some labeling so people know that uh, this device should not take the place of something you would get from a medical professional or a approved FDA device. Uh, so that was one area that likely is still being worked on, which is why that feature is not yet available, even though the watch is. Um, there's some other factors here about people maybe misinterpreting or being over-reliant on the device output. Uh, there's also issues related to false negatives, uh, which might fail to identify that somebody has an arrhythmia or an AFib condition and prompt them not to get medical treatment when they should. And the FDA has been very clear about what this clearance entails and that uh, the Watch app is going to be used for detecting AFib only uh, and showing sinus rhythm on a classifiable waveform. Uh, they are not clearing the device for other known arrhythmias at this time. 
Uh, and that's probably one of the risk areas because if you're feeling a little off, maybe you've got some chest pain or something and you run the ECG and it says you're fine, uh, you could maybe not get medical attention as a result of what the watch told you. That's one of the risk factors that Apple is going to have to mitigate through the human factors that they listed in their uh, list of mitigations. So I think what's going to happen is the watch is going to probably prompt you before running the test to know what it's for and what it isn't for and probably prompt the user if you're not feeling well, you still need to call the doctor. This is not a diagnosis. This is for informational use only, as it says here on screen. And they should not be uh, interpreting or taking any clinical action for this. It's also interesting, too, that they're recommending that people who are under 22 years of age not use it. And there have been some uh, pretty uh, remarkable reports in the media about how Apple Watches have helped some uh, high school athletes avoid a serious heart issue because it noticed a very rapid heart rate. It'll still detect that, but it looks like they're not recommending for whatever reason that people under 22 years of age rely on this as an informational product. So there's some limitations put in place here, and Apple's going to have to figure out how to make all of that clear here on a very small screen. So this will be interesting to see what happens when they implement it. I'm still waiting for my Apple Watch, by the way, so when it gets here, maybe that feature will be ready by then, and we'll take a deep dive into how it works and how they plan to address some of those risk factors. And then Raymond Dave Vrede here uh, wrote in about the fact that this is only one measuring point on the Apple ECG and that a typical ECG has 12 leads to get much more accurate ratings. And that is very much the case here. Again, this is why it is an informational product only. But again, I think the value of this is that uh, if you are feeling off and you have AFib as a condition or don't know that you have it, if the watch says, hey, you know, I think you might have atrial fibrillation, maybe it's time to go see a doctor. And if it gets people to do that, I think that is a far greater value and health benefit to patients than not having anything at all. And I think that's the same measurement that the FDA is putting up here to make sure that the benefits here outweigh the risks. And that's probably what they're working on with Apple right now. And as soon as this is ready, and as soon as I get my watch, we'll try it out and see how it works. Now, this next set of questions comes out of a fun discussion regarding keyboard backlighting that we've been having on the Facebook page, as well as here on the YouTube channel, uh, because I've never really cared about backlighting all that much. And it looks like uh, both uh, Stephanie and Vexerian here agree with me because I'm a touch typer. I've always been able to feel my way around the keys and never really look down all that much. My dad made me take uh, typing in high school and I'm so glad that I did because it was a lifelong skill and I'm very, very quick on the keyboard and I never have to look down provided it is a full-size keyboard uh, like something I have in my hand here. But home theater keyboards, I'm starting to feel a little differently about and you can see here also that uh, Slappy here kind of agrees perhaps with what I'm about to say on this topic. So here is that little Lenovo keyboard we looked at recently. And one of my knocks against it was that it wasn't backlit uh, and it isn't. Now it's cool. You can use the keypad here as a touchpad. So as you move your finger across here, all of these key keys are capacitive and you can click either by tapping on here or pushing the button down below. But the problem here is Slappy brings up is that when you're in a dark room with a keyboard that's not a typical full-size keyboard, it's very hard to feel your way around on these things. And that was uh, one of the issues I noted with the Logitech keyboard that we saw at the show. It's being marketed as a home theater keyboard, but has no backlight for 
uh, feeling around in the dark. Now it is a full-size keyboard, so that might uh, make it okay when I finally get it in to test it, but I think a keyboard that you use in a home theater environment should have a backlight. Now this is the K830 that we use quite extensively here on the channel. Uh, you probably can't see it, but it is backlit. Uh, and it looks pretty cool in the dark, actually, and you're able to very easily figure out what you're about to type on before you do it. It is a little heavier and bulkier than that keyboard we looked at at the show, but it is backlit and I think works much better in a home theater environment as a result of it. And one of the things that is funny about uh, keyboard backlighting is that when I first started reviewing laptops, I was never talking about whether or not the laptop had a backlight because I've always been a uh, touch typer and I didn't really need one ever, but it's been interesting to learn how important it is for other people to have backlighting even on full-size keyboards. And I'd love to get your thoughts on whether or not home theater keyboards need to be backlit or not down in the comments below. Uh, I think at this size they need to be just so you know what you're typing on, uh, but you might disagree or agree. Let me know down there. And our channel of the week this week is for other Plex aficionados, and I'm sure he will have some thoughts on all these changes coming to Plex very shortly. Uh, it is Bite My Bits. He does a lot of Plex stuff, covers a lot of uh, things that I cover here, but in a different way. So you might get something out of his channel that you're not getting out of mine. So definitely check him out. And he's got a bunch of other cool projects on there too. Uh, so bite my bits and you can find the link right there on screen. So this week on the channel, I've got a couple of things I am definitely hoping to get to. Uh, the first is this uh, little touch display that we unboxed on the Extras channel. Uh, could be a hidden gem, may not be a hidden gem, who knows? I haven't looked at it just yet, but we're going to be uh, starting that evaluation a little bit later this afternoon, and you should be seeing that review up Tuesday or Wednesday. I also got in one of the short throw projectors from ViewSonic. Uh, they're talking about how you don't have to have it all that far away from the projection surface to get a large image. So we'll see how well that works. And they're also touting its uh, very low input latency for gaming. So we'll test some video games out on it too, because how cool would it be to have a very low latency projector and get yourself a huge uh, vision of your uh, Super Mario games and whatnot. So we'll be testing all that out on that device there. And we're still uh, looking at doing something with Steam OS. I just have to get some time to uh, get Corey's old PC over there refurbished and we'll uh, start playing around with that because I'm eager to see how some of these Windows games work on it. I was hoping to do it last week because I was also hoping that Lenovo laptop we got in would be okay with Linux. It wasn't, it kept locking up and everything. So we weren't able to get this to work on that but we will find something that it works on and see how well some of this new Windows compatibility is working on the Linux side, which I think might be exciting for a lot of you who are eager to rid yourself of Linux, but want some of those Windows games too. Now, if you want to help the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or one-time contribution to the channel. We also have our ongoing relationship with Plex, where if you sign up for a free Plex account, no credit card required, we get a small commission. And you can also sign up for a Plex Pass or gift it to somebody else, and we'll get a slightly larger commission as a result of that. We also have other channels that you can follow me on. My extras channel at lon.tv extras is unboxings and other supplementary content. We have a podcast that you can get more information at on the link you see on screen. That is an audio version of this show and some of the interviews that I do. We have the Snippets channel, which takes portions of this show and re-uploads them in bite-sized pieces. And we have my live stream archive that you can find on screen there too. And we'll probably do another one when I get a little more free time, which should be in the next month or two. And if you want to follow what I do and always get notified, you can click on the bell to get notifications sent to you every time I upload anything or go live. And you can do that 
on all of my channels. And we have other ways to engage as well. So we have my very infrequent email list that you can find at lon.tv slash email. We have the Facebook page, which has taken on a new life now that we're in Facebook's Launchpad program. So I'm putting a lot of video up there. So uh, be sure to check it out. Maybe some reviews you missed in the past will find their way to you there. Uh, so you can find me on Facebook now in uh, greater quantity. And we have the Facebook group, which is also growing as a result of the Facebook page growing. So that's been a really fun thing to interact with fellow viewers. And we have the store where I sell things that I have previously reviewed here on the channel. You can find that at lon.tv slash store. But I do suggest you sign up for the store alert uh, because the store right now is empty. I'm sold out of all the stuff that I was trying to get rid of. Uh, so the next step for me is to go back into the room there and find some more stuff to offer to you at affordable prices. So we'll be doing that very shortly. If there is something that I reviewed that you're interested in, uh, let me know down in the comments below. Uh, I do not sell things that I get for free from the manufacturer. Uh, some other things have a time span to them. So let me know if there's anything you like and I will uh, let you know what is available and we'll go from there. And that is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. I always appreciate all the feedback you give me, good, bad, or indifferent. I read just about every comment, even though I can't reply to everyone these days, but I do take them all in. So thank you all for your continued support of the channel. Your feedback makes the difference, so keep it coming, and we'll have a lot more cool stuff for you to check out later this week. Until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Chris Allegretta, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast. Tom Albrecht. Gerard Newberg. And Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.